later on today's episode. Yeah, well, not only can it be passed down literally genetically, like from mother to child, but then if you also take into account so many things that I consider to be our culture, but what she is saying is actually symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That you grow up in mindset wise, you know, individuals Mm -hmm. who raised you, right? So like these individuals who lived through Jim Crow had children and those children had children. That is me, Right. right? right? She speaks in the book. Um, which we'll get to probably in our next one, that we are slavery's children, right? Mm-hmm. And how that's important mm-hmm. for us to understand. So, whew, lot to unpack. Hello, this is Patrice. Thank you for clicking on this episode. Here at the Melanated Intellects podcast, we talk about everything from Black mental health and personal growth to Black world history. And my name is Shayla. Here you will find a balance between topics everyone is talking about and topics no one is talking about. Either way, we guarantee we will be bringing our distinct intellectual perspective. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back. Um, this is the next or second um, episode in our three-part series highlighting our book discussion. The book that we're covering is Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome by Dr. Joy DeGruy. If you have not heard part one, you definitely want to make sure that you do because we're going to pretty much pick up right where we left off uh, in regards to the conversation. There's so much to unpack here. Um, so we're just going to hop right in. Mm-hmm. Um, we want to move on and we're, we're kind of progressing in the book the same way she does. Not exactly, but kind of in that same uh, format. And in episode one, we defined what post-traumatic um, slave syndrome was and, and kind of set the groundwork for that. So continue on and moving on. Um, this book is really quite educational because it's kind of like a history book. And also because she's using history and facts, as Patrice mentioned in our last episode to support her, this concept of post-traumatic slave syndrome. So I want to hop right into American chattel slavery and some facts about it and just some things about it that I think when it comes to kind of the argument of that was a long time ago and um, Africans often had slaves as well, like kind of these rebuttals, kind of what this next chapter that we're going to move into started with. And we want an opportunity to be able to address that. So American chattel slavery was very different from most varieties of enslavement. And that's something that's really important for people to mention um, or to think about when we speak about our history. It was different in the treatment. It was a different in the length of uh, servitude. And it was also very different in the way owners viewed their slaves. Um, Europeans systematically turned the capturing, shipping, and selling of other human beings into a business. Prior to that, it was something like, you know, we lost a war. So, you know, now we're going to take you and you're going to be our slave because you lost a war, right? Like it was certain um, scenarios in which enslavement would happen, but Europeans were the first to make it systematic in that way. Um, Also in ancient Greece, in Rome, um, and even other places throughout the African continent, slaves had legal status. And even though they belong to their owner, they could often be granted um, freedom or pay for their freedom. They could also be allowed to marry in most instances. Typically, um, if born, if if an individual was born to a parent that was enslaved, the child would be considered free. Um, Also, uh, they were allowed to be educated. In many cases, the slaves were allowed to be educated. Um, so just to put some things into perspective here, the first slaves arrived in the Americas from Africa in the early 1500s. The transatlantic slave trade was made illegal in the U.S. in 1808 and continued in other parts of the Americas until 1870. Um, estimates of the number of people captured varies, but the figure, and again, these stats, I put this disclaimer out in the first one, but I'll say it again here. This book was written in 2005. So still current day, but almost 20 years ago. So I want to put that into perspective when we're speaking about these statistics. 
Um, but anyway, um, estimates, the number of people captured uh, varies, but the figure uh, is between 20 and 30 million. And this was over or around 430 years of this process of taking individuals from their homeland and systematically turning it into what we now know as chattel slavery. Um, many places, slaves, uh, like I mentioned, could be married and be educated. And the just American slavery experience was exclusively based on the notion of racial inferiority. And that is something very specific to American slavery. Um, again, a lot of the slavery and things of that nature that happened, you know, was taken because we, two countries or two, you know, continents, whatever, wherever they were located, went to war, they captured someone um, or a group of people who lost. They also mentioned, and I don't have her specific quote, but I'm just going off of memory of what I read. Sometimes instead of taking everybody, they would just take the strongest, right? Um, as far as warriors or soldiers, so that this group of individuals or people could not um, win the next war, right? It was not something that was turned into a business. It was not something that someone was made to feel less than because of their ethnicity. It wasn't that case until, until Europe did what they did and it became what we know it to be today. Um, I, and I would even say that reminds me of like the exiles that we've talked about with our previous, it's not black history series where the leaders of some of these, like the Asante tribe, Oh, how mm -hmm. they were exiled onto different yeah, yeah, islands, yeah. not enslaved. <laughs> good point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good point. Yes, good point. We spoke about that. Um, our last two seasons we've done, we changed it up for Black History Month, but we highlighted that, I think, in season one of uh, Black History February. Mm -hmm. We highlighted mm -hmm. that. That's true. Um, I do want to quote a section here. Um, Europeans concluded that Black Africans were fitted by a natural act of God to the position of permanent bondage. It was this sort of revelation to lesser hu humanity that allowed the institution of chattel slavery to be linked to violence. Um, and she also did touch on the fact that the, the amount of violence and aggression and dehumanization of the institution of slavery was just really, I don't want to say invented, but it was really pushed forward by Europeans. That was not something that was a thing before this was the case. So I say all that just to prove a point here that she's making in regards to the book, because I think the term slave or slavery, right, has can have a variety of different definitions. She spoke mm -hmm. about how in many other places in the world, slaves were more like what we would consider to be indentured servants. Mm -hmm. um, so, mm -hmm. and, or um, even prisoners because they had a fixed time. It was like a fixed sentencing. Mm, yeah, mm -hmm. good point. Yes, mm -hmm. fixed sentencing. Yeah. Um, and I know Patrice, you have some things you want to talk about. I don't know if, if you have thoughts that you want to share about that, or you want to move on to sort of the next point. Oh, we can dive in. I've kind of jumped in through my thoughts. <laughs> so, okay. um, so, you know, we say this and we preface with this because this leads us to the three-fifths compromise and all of the effort that went into proving that slaves were essentially not people. Like the terms that are used here are rightless persons, thinking, non-thinking property, um, or I think there was another terminology in here of like personal property as well. So the effort that, and I, I don't think people really realize this piece and my brain, you know, uh, me being a prior science major way, 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 way back in the day, like this has always been not only triggering, but also like the most just jaw dropping piece of the, this whole um, theory is that the efforts that went to prove that um, slaves were not human. Um, it, they approached it from a theoretical level to a scientific level 
to a legal level with what they call laws and unwritten laws and so on. Um, she has a quote here that says, shadow slavery and genocide of the Native American population were so unchristian, the only way they can make their actions acceptable and so resolve the dissonance was to relegate their victims to the level of being subhuman. So um, there's a lot of history around, you know, the relationship between Christianity and slavery. I'm, I hear about it all the time, so I won't dive too deep on that because I will be literally a couple of episodes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, to kind of talk more about um, the breakdown of what that looked like um, in terms of the scientific approach and how they justified it with some of these laws is, I believe his, I cannot pronounce his name, but Carl von Linnaeus, um, he, I actually do remember the same pretty vividly from our from biology classes when I was a kid, but he was responsible for the taxonomic, I'm not saying that word right, but I'm okay with it, system we use today to classify life, kingdom, mm. phylum, class, order, family, genius, and species. So essentially, with his approach to this, his highly suspect effort to classify humans also follow through, which is a piece that they definitely don't talk about in the books. But um, he, his findings would lay down the science for anthropology, hence why when people bring up anthropology, there's always a rooted um, discussion around racism, um, which I did not know that until I heard her lecture about this. But essentially... His work, the Systema Naturae, specifically, y'all know these words are usually in Latin or something, and I'm I'm sorry, I cannot read this properly, so forgive me for my pronunciation, but he referred to, um, and a lot of this is very inappropriate language, so I'm just going to go ahead and leave it. These are his words, not mine, and it's racist. So uh, Linnaeus describes Homo Americanus as reddish choleric, obstinate, contended, and regulated by custom. Homo Europaeus as white, fickle, sanguine, blue-eyed, gentle, and governed by laws. Homo Asiaticus, it's it's got the word Asia in it, okay? As sallow, grave, dignified, ovaricious, I can't say that word, and ruled by opinion. And Homo Afer as black, phlegmatic, cunning, lazy, lustful, careless, and governed by caprice. So based off his findings, mind you, there's no test, no observations, no true science or experiments done to justify his findings. This is purely based off his opinion, but it does go into books and does lead to law. So um, he, as a result, you know, he also founded a lot of ways of much how we um, describe. So for example, he invented the word Caucasian. It's a term mm. which he originated. He took the name from Mount Caucasus. can never say that word. Y'all got, I got a lisp. I'm going to ruin that. Um, mm. And because of its Southern slope cradled what he felt to be the most beautiful race of men. Um, and this was a biblical arc. This is where the biblical arc came to rest after the flood. And he seemed to be the most appropriate for the original race of men. So it kind of starts with that white supremacist approach to this. There's findings in here about how he would look at the skulls of slaves and which we all saw this demonstration in, um, if you've seen Django, Leonardo DiCaprio, there's a scene towards the end of the film where he pulls out um, an old slave that used to serve as his family and he breaks open the skull and he shows these two indentures with inside the skull. This is actually coming from this man in this book. Like that was, that's actually true that that was a finding that they would use to prove the, um, the laziness or the stupid or whatever labels they want to put on slaves that to justify dehumanizing them um, with and basically claimed themselves to be superior at this time. Um, Africans were considered to be impure, irreligious, and uncivilized. Um, as a result, you know, it was not possible to murder. It was not possible to rape. The women were lustful. The um, 
and also, you know, when it came to slavery, you know, this was something that they, because of what Shayla was saying, that they were just fit for slaves, this was something that it looked well on them. Like this was, they were happy to be slaves, which I have no idea where that narrative came from. Like, how can you, I, I hear that a lot as far as how they describe slaves, whether in these, um, and I can never think of the terminologies, the first plays where their white men would dress up with black makeup. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, men, um, men, monst- men, monst- men, monst- minstrel play. Minstrels. Yeah. And they were, they would show, Slaves is happy, singing and all. Like, that has never made any sense to me. And I never understand how they like to relate those two. But I guess it's to say that their life is fit. Like, this is the way it should be. I I have no idea. But, you know, just to kind of dive into that, I just kind of want to spend some time on that piece. That's pretty much all I want to cover. But the science behind this was just perverted to me. It was so disgusting. Um... There's a piece here where it says whether originally a distinct race or more distinct by time and circumstances, these are blacks are inferior to the whites in the endowments of body and mind. Like there was so much effort to dehumanize. There was so much energy placed here. Yeah. I mean, and to speak to your point, as far as like, why, or where does that come from? As far as slaves being happy, essentially to be slaves, I think um, one would be, you know, cognitive dissonance, right? What she speaks about Mm -hmm. in the book, um, she says the greater distance between our actions and what we think about ourselves, the greater the cognitive dissonance, right? So the more severe the cognitive dissonance is the more severe, essentially the lie is going to be, at least that's how I perceive it, that you're going to tell yourself. Um, And then I also think, you know, after so many generations, I I wouldn't at all say someone would be happy to be a slave, but I would say that it became very normalized, um, Mm -hmm. especially for the generations that once, once the original, and we're talking about over 400 years. So Mm -hmm the original group of Africans that were brought here, once you no longer know anyone that's here or personally know anyone that, you know, um, was brought over, right? And I understand that people were continuously being brought over, but you also had generations of like, I was here, was enslaved and died. My child was here, maybe not here on this plantation, but here in America, right? Um, then, you know, just, I wonder if it just became something I'm sure that was just normalized, um, at that point, but yeah, she's has spoken a lot about cognitive dissonance. I also saw a, um, a lecture. Yeah. It was a lecture Mm -hmm. that she had on YouTube. And I actually think, you know, I kind of challenged the word dehumanization because I think it's more than less than human because she kind of used an example. Um, she was at a lecture and she'll go to like um, colleges and universities. She'll also go to workplaces and corporate mm-hmm. life and do lectures. And she was speaking to a room of individuals. I can't recall which one of these settings that she was at, but it was a mixed crowd. And um, she was talking about if she had a puppy at the front of this classroom right now, she instructed someone to bring in a puppy and she brought Mm -hmm. that puppy to the front of the room and she stomped on that puppy. She was like, y'all would all be traumatized. Mm -hmm. And a puppy is not a human. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's really, it's, it's, yeah, Yeah. it's even, it's really, it's more than less than human. Like we, I honestly feel like we need a new word than dehumanize because it's even like the cows and pigs and and, and cows and horses that a lot of slaves tended to were treated better than the slaves. So it's, it's more than less than human. Um, I'm not certain what the word should be, but yeah, I kind of challenged that word because it's like, you know, I can think of animals that were treated better. treated better than that. I treated were more like people. Yeah. 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 Have a, exactly. have a human empathy. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I do want to uh, share a quote um, here, which is kind of related to the chattel slavery aspect of it, but it is estimated that millions of Africans die in route and exceeded the number of those killed in the Jewish Holocaust of the 1930s and 40s. American chattel slavery represents a case of human trauma incomparable in scope, 
duration, and consequence to any other incidents of human enslavement. Um, Mm. I think it's just important for us to really put that into perspective, thinking about the scope, the, the distance of time, individuals like earlier, um, I, I didn't did I don't remember if it was this episode or the last episode, but I was speaking about like twenty to thirty million people, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's unspeakable to me when you think of when you put numbers to it, it's really like mind blowing. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and you know. I think that, you know, there is a lot to be said. I'm, I'm a, are we ready to keep moving on? Whatever you, you like to do. That? No, okay. I don't have anything, but you're more than welcome to uh, comment on what I said. Um, I think that, you know, I struggle with the idea that we have to keep producing all of this evidence for something that literally was the economic system for this country at one point. You know, it was damn near currency, but it also came with labor. Um, So I I always struggle, you know, and I know we spend a lot of time on, it wasn't that long ago. This is how many years it went on for. This is how many people. This is a percentage. Like there's so much evidence and um, information out there today, way more than what there was when we were kids, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and way more accessible. It's hard. Sometimes it's a, it's a little triggering for me that we have to continuously, continuously prove this point and drill this home. I'm a period my sentence there oh okay <laughs> okay oh, you're right though I almost, I almost kept talking you're right you oh, read okay. me right but I, oh, I just okay. closed stop that's it okay <laughs> yeah um well I mean I think it's something that gets socialized right black people and white people right it just gets socialized in America these concepts of this long time ago it, you know right um but that's a good point that you bring longer the longer time goes on the more information we have about things that are discovered numbers percentages etc and again this is from 2005 right so that's not even speaking current day um Mm -hmm. i do want to move on to the next section here Mm -hmm. that she highlights in the book about um rape and experiments and um she goes on to talk about um experiments done on black women um, particularly, and Jay, he was a, um, he was a doctor, but Jay Marion Sims, and he created, I feel like a lot of us know his name, but if you don't know his name, he created the vaginal speculum. I think the version that we still use today, I'm sure it's been updated, mm-hmm. but the version we still use today. Um, he experimented without anesthesia, uh, reasoning that slave women were able to bear great pain because of their rapes. He made them, um, or he felt that they were more durable uh, and were suited for painful medical experiments. Um, the book also referenced, maybe not him specifically, but just in general, slave women being viewed as lustful, um, and promiscuous, promiscuous, mm-hmm. yeah, irreligious terms like that because of their shape and um physique animal like mm-hmm. yeah and of course i've heard that before right like this is not news as far as the rape and experiments but one thing that she really does try to do in the book i feel because she does put in a lot of stories and we kind of talked about that in um in the first episode and i think that's important because even as black people like we're we're very aware of what happened. And obviously there's a lot of emotion and ancestral trauma that we have from that, right? And that we can connect to. But I think rarely, in my opinion, do I speak to someone who really tried to put themselves in the shoes of an individual who was enslaved. And so what she does with some of the stories that she has is that she really tries to have the reader do that, regardless of their race. She tries to have the reader do that. And she kind of spoke about um 
moms or parents, I guess it doesn't have to be a mom, but parents being enslaved and needing to have a conversation with their children at a really young age to prepare them for their life and for women prepare them for rape. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, just imagine having to be in this state to need to be explaining that to your child. Right. And it just really like, I don't know. I don't know that we, I don't know that we as people, not black or white, I don't know that we as people of today living in a modern society have really tried to put ourselves in that, in those shoes. And I feel like that was a point she was really trying to bring home with some of the things that she was discussing, at least in this part of the book for me. Um, Patrice, I know you had some things you wanted to add, um, especially mm-hmm. connecting black women in, in health care specifically of today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, what's interesting is that I thought the article was 2019, which there is one, but I guess it's more recent um, oh. since Kamala Harris has been our vice president. And so this past December, she launched the first maternal health day of action and announced a White House call to action to reduce maternal mortality and morbidity rates in the United States and described it as a crisis for black mothers and stressed the urgency of pursuing systemic policies that provide comprehensive, comprehensive, holistic maternal health care free from bias and discrimination. And it goes, this article, which we will link in the description goes further to break down how the U S has among the highest maternal mortality rates in the developed world. And much of these deaths, 60%, according to the CDC are preventable. And even within this context, the likelihood of dying from a pregnancy-related cause is 2.5 times higher for a Black woman in this country than a white woman. In 2019, the maternal mortality rate for non-Hispanic Black women was 44 per 100,000 live births, compared to 17.9 deaths among white women. And... Further studies, National Institutes of Health found that healthcare providers were less likely to identify pain in the facial expressions of Black faces than on the continuances of non-Black ones. Because they couldn't see it, they were less likely to believe a Black patient was experiencing severe discomfort or acute pain. This research is echoed in the voices of many Black mothers who recounted stories of being devalued and disrespectful disrespected by medical providers during pregnancy and childbirth. Yeah, I've seen even on, um, and not that the social media is a, a necessarily reliable source, but I've seen on social media where like even current day individuals in the medical field will say like um, mm-hmm. things have been said like in class, for example, of like, black people having thicker skin or, you know, something to that effect that would impact, excuse me, our ability to feel pain is just simply not true. Right. And like current day. Right. So I think this, I think it's important to connect things to current day and not that Mm -hmm. she doesn't do that in the book, but again, this was written in 2005. I think it's important to connect it to current day because And the conversation of racism, specifically systematic racism, things like this matter, right? Like that's, this is where the systematic part comes in at, right? Because this man, um, the science theory, actually, I don't have a year on J Marion Sims, but Mm -hmm. arguably a very long time ago. Right. Um, and his ideologies and beliefs are still stitched through what is happening today. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, that's the obvious point here. And I would even argue that Carl von Linnaeus from um, the 18th century prior to him, who was focused on the species and identifying each race and their nuances um, when in his cover of Outcasts from Evolution, um, I would even say that he also played a huge factor in, you know, conversations that we are still having today. And what's interesting, and again, and Dr. Joy does a great job of of highlighting this. None of it was done from actual scientific study, but yet today there are lives still being lost and miscalculations, mistreatment, disrespect, discrimination still taking place on a national level 
as it relates to medic the the medical um, field with Black women as a result of all of this systemic. I don't know. I found. I don't know what else is. If that ain't it, you know what I mean. I really don't know what else is. Uh, yeah. So, um, and and the the reason why she and and we are going over this information is because when we really get to the the um the syndrome, um, which we will in our three part series eventually get to her syndrome and the symptoms and things of that nature. When we get to that, all of this information historically that comes up to here, we need for people to understand, right? Mm-hmm. So is it a history lesson for sure, right? Because these things happen, but it's, it's also laying the groundwork. And that's how she had kind of has it laid out in the book. She, you know, spent more than one chapter laying out the groundwork for you to really try to understand the trauma before she gets to the syndrome um, as support. Yeah. yeah, as, as support. Uh, you know, using these things as support of what she is suggesting is post-traumatic slave syndrome to really understand how that could be inbred. Mm-hmm. Um, Patrice, did you have anything else to add? Um, I mean, before we move on to the next, yeah, let's uh, let's go ahead and move on. Yeah, okay. Um, okay, so I kind of want to move on to convict leasing system. She spent um, a decent amount of time speaking about that. Um, Most of it I knew. Some of it I didn't, to be honest. Um, So this was after after slavery ended. So she starts moving into other things that happened after that. So convict leasing system was essentially, what are we going to do with, excuse me, with freed blacks who commit crimes was sort of the question um in place here um building prisons was too expensive she said instead of imprisoning them the state leased them to plantation owners that was also very much so a very lucrative business right because you now you have free labor again Right. Mm -hmm. In South Carolina, she said the living conditions were so bad that half the individuals that were leased died in the first 12 months. It's estimated that as many as a quarter of all bleak, excuse me, all black leased convicts um, throughout the South died while still under lease. Life as a convict was sometimes worse than as a slave, backbreaking work, beaten, brutalized and sodomized. If um, if the the individual died, then they the plantation owner would just call the state and get a replacement. It was just that easy to get a replacement. Um, Not only were they already less than human, but now criminals. And you also have to understand that when we think of the term criminal, often false crimes or or crimes Mm -hmm. that did not deserve the sentence so you know at that time uh, a crime was could be anything from um looking at a white woman the wrong way uh, walking on the wrong side of the street um anything that you can think of a made-up crime it didn't even have to be a real crime right because it was beneficial for them to get free labor, um, not to mention all of the the racial um, issues that would, you know, have someone making up why somebody did something. Um, and this was right after slavery. Um, so Patrice, thoughts on that? Yeah, this had a, yeah. Um, <laughs> it just, y'all, I'm triggered, okay? This is a lot, so just bear with me. But um it gives me, it makes me think about like, um, during that time, you know, how black people would step off the sidewalk while white people walk past mm. and let them take the sidewalk and then step back on and continue their walk. Um, it reminds me of things like that, behaviors like that, that were very enforced and normal. Um, and it also like makes me think about mass incarceration in the nineties and, you know, um, drugs being criminalized versus being treated as a mental health condition compared to um, opioids today. You know, it really makes me think about 
I'm, I'm kind of tying it all to current day in terms of the long road and connecting all the dots, as I mentioned in our first episode, because I still feel like there's a level of a lot of this here. There's still, like I kind of mentioned, there was more of, there's more of an effort to replace old systems with new mm. systems to keep some degree of this continuously going. Um, and it's not until it's out of control does thing do things get cracked down on, but it takes so many black bodies to get to that point. Um, and just thinking about the ways that, you know, I know during the same time lynchings were very normalized. I know during this time, you know, um, it makes me think of that film Life with uh, oh, Eddie yeah. Murphy, Mara Lawrence. Like, that's what I think of when I'm seeing, even these pictures look like it to me, to be honest with you, um, as far as, like, illustrations. Because I believe they were working on a plantation in that film, and those two men hadn't done anything, you know? Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's all I got. Okay. Um, yeah, and I know there's been a lot of um, current day films and information in regards to um, prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she does go over that a little more in the book. So you're right. Yeah, current day, I think, you know, again, it's important to connect it to current day because it's the what happened back then set the groundwork for what mm-hmm. would later become. And I just don't feel like that gets addressed or talked about enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, prison is a business. Still is a business. Very a much business so. Back then, still is Heavily a invested. Now. Private prisons is still a problem. Go watch, uh, I believe it's 14th, 13th. I'll never get the right. It's 13th uh, by Ava DuVernay. Oh, she yeah. She breaks it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In great deal, the amount of corporations and politics that go into that. She is, that is a phenomenal documentary to go into the true meaning of the um, abolishment of slavery and indentured servants and what that really meant and how that laid the groundwork for mass incarceration. Yeah. Um, even here, she even kind of brought some current day-ish stats where she mentioned since 1980, the number of incarcerated men and women in the U.S. has increased between 400 and 500%. That's wild. 400 and 500%. That's not specifically African-American, right? But that's just people in general. Um, half of it is. Half. I was just about to say, yeah, <laughs> half, were African, half were African-American. Half were African While, you know, we only make up a small percentage Back then, she quoted 12%. It's more than that now. But again, this is I think it's like 14 now. I think it's like okay. 14 now. Yeah. Um, she mentioned one in 21 were Black men in prison, one in 56 Hispanic, and one in 47 were white. Um, it, I mean, that's just staggering. Now, that's current day. Those are current day numbers. Um, so, you know, yeah. Um, she, a, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to turn it over to you anyway. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, were you okay? There's a quote here that um, is very interesting to me. Um, okay, I'm not allowed to you. Okay, I do got one more thing to add. Okay, go ahead. Okay, it's I'm a- my words anyway. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. It's a quote here. The per capita again, 2000. The book was written in 2005. The per capita incarceration rate among blacks is seven times that of whites. For every one black man that graduates from college, 100 are arrested. Wow. Mm-hmm. Isn't that crazy? That is so crazy. That is so mm-hmm. crazy. She also, um, throughout the book, kind of gave some personal experiences, like of her and her brothers and her and her son and her and her father and their experience with like racism or the police and run-ins and things like that and how she saw this impact them. Um, so she also shared stories of that. Um but anyway, you were going to say something. Yeah. Um, I, there's a quote here that she has that I think is referring to lynchings more specifically, but, um, and, you know, rapes and abuse. But I collectively, I feel like it drives home where if they could no longer legalize blacks into submission, they would terrorize them with, and essentially with fear. Um, and I think a lot of these 
systems, which she later will get into in the next episode, you know, it creates a mental, I feel like it's like a mental warfare within your mind, you know, as badly as you want to strive for these rights, when you know you got the clan waiting on you, when you know you got police, judges, you know what I'm saying, pastors, all these high-profile members of your of this community standing against you, not only ready to say no, but not but brutalize you, your family, murder, lynch, beat, rape. You know what I'm saying? Like that can change your mind about voting real quick. That can change your mind about trying to get a job, get a house, get all of these mm. things. And it becomes a why try. Mm. Yeah. For the person who's That's tired, fair. who's exhausted, who's mentally drained. Why? I'm tired. That's real. That's all. No. Real. <laughs> so real. There, um, she talks about unwritten laws um, and how they were in place that justified any acts of resistance. Um, here she also has the lyrics to Billie Holiday's Strange Fruit. So again, going back to lynchings, she discusses the KKK and groups like it that vowed to suppress black freedoms and proceed to beat, exile, and kill them. Um, and at first... You know, this this group was the goal was to disenfranchise. But once that was achieved, the terrorism just continued Um, and black men were killed for any number of reasons. And oftentimes as a result of, uh, you know, a white woman or what have you, as we know, with stories like um, uh, Emmett Till. But what was interesting to me was this unwritten law. And there's a statute that claimed that for certain crimes, or alleged crimes, no Negro shall be allowed a trial, that no white woman shall be compelled to charge an assault under oath or to submit any such charge to the investigation of a court of law. The result is that many men have been put to death whose innocence was afterward established. And they, and today, under this foreign, this reign of unwritten law, no colored man, no matter what his reputation is safe from lynching, if a white woman, no matter what her standing or motive, cares to charge him with insult or assault. And that's actually the words of um, Ida B. Wells. Um, mm. It is, yeah, I, yeah, I'm going to slip it back to you because I'm losing my train of thought getting lost in these details. Um, actually, actually, there's one more thing I actually want to cover. But under this unwritten law, you know, we know that pretty much any act of violence against black Negroes based off whatever crime was said to have been um, act, um, committed was pretty much outlawed. That's what the whole point of the unwritten law was, whether it was mutilation, what have you. Um, and between 1882 and 1967, 200 bills were presented before Congress to outlaw lynching. Additionally, seven presidents urged Congress to end the practice. Each and every time these efforts were rejected by the Congress and lynchings continued unabated and unpunished. It was not until 2005 that the U.S. Senate offered an apology for what it termed domestic terrorism against mostly black people. And you can go back and listen to our 100 Years of Black History to learn where we're at with that today. As far as it being a hate crime, because we definitely touched on that then. But um, so, yeah, that was one piece that I wanted to cover on while I was talking about the unwritten law. Um, So, Shayla, Mm -hmm. I'll kick it back to you. Yeah. um, Well, a couple of things to just and and the point I want to make with presenting this information again, I want to continue reiterate the psyche. Right. Mm -hmm. Like the psyche of all of these acts being committed, like really try to put yourself in the shoes of an individual who experienced this. Right. And mm-hmm. for a lot of us are, cause I'm about to move into Jim Crow for a lot of us are parents or grandparents, mm-hmm. depending on what age you are, um, mm-hmm. experienced 
what we're about to talk about. And that's why, and I, and I really drilled it home on the 100 years of black history. If you guys have an opportunity, go back and check it out. Last um, Black History Month, we did 100 years of black history. It was a four-part series, but it was on black history across the world, not just the mm-hmm. U.S. But anyway, mm-hmm. um, about how long ago things were in relation to, there's even um, evidence that they... Um, made pictures of like MLK black and white to, to make, try it, to seem make it seem like yeah. it was longer ago than it was. Um, and I appreciate his, um, I believe it's his daughter or granddaughter. I want to say it's his daughter who is actively sharing colored photos on Twitter all the time. And they're beautiful. It's crazy. I mean, just seeing them like that is like, Wow. Because, you know, in our history books, they look black and white. Like, that's how it's always yeah. been. Malcolm X yeah. and MLK are black and white. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that long ago. Um, mm. Yeah, Jim Crow um, ended 68 years ago. <laughs> Jim Crow ain't even 70 years old. If Jim Crow was a man, he, My would, not name be, is 80. That's he would not be 70 years old yet. Um... Well, he is a man, but if that if that was his lifespan, <laughs> if if Jim Crow was a man born when Jim Crow ended, okay. <laughs> yeah, we can stand his ass. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm. Um, I don't know. It's it's so much to unpack. Um, yeah, let's it's, let's it's so much go. to unpack. Oh. Mm-hmm. No, you're good. Go ahead. You're, I feel like no, you're going to go where I'm I'm just saying it's anyway. so much to unpack. And um, I think her, uh, she mentions this several times in the book, the point of like, it ended with slavery. Like it did not end with slavery. There were still these other things that happened afterwards. And I talked in episode one about her experience in South Africa, where there was reconciliation and we were able to move forward, even though this just ended, you know, quite recently. South Africa, she was referenced, she was visiting South Africa um, once apartheid ended, right? So she was explaining her experience within that. Um, And so I don't know, it's just, it's so interesting and deep to look at our history in that way and to just see that there's been this long drawn out, there hasn't been this cutoff point of like, here's where it was okay and reconciliation and that really hasn't happened. Um, there's some things you wanted to mention. Did you want to talk about the conference or were you going to head someplace else? Um, I think that, well, actually that's a good point of the conference, which of course not lost my page of the exact quote, but essentially it took place in 2005 and it was like the United Nations conference to address, um, racism and the U S walked out. Um, yeah, after was it that after um it was declared that American chattel slavery was a crime? Yeah, so here it is huma- against humanity. Mm-hmm. The fact that the delegation from the United States walked out of the United Nations World Conference against racism in August of two thousand one, a conference that declared American chattel slavery as a crime against humanity only served to highlight America's refusal to acknowledge this period in her own past. Yeah, yeah. I was having an interesting conversation with a mixed group of individuals where a very open and honest discussion came up about race. And um, this individual who was kind of speaking was like, you know, he was speaking about this instinct or sort of natural, I don't know, instinct. I'm going to call it an instinct for lack of a better term of current day individuals, particularly within the white community, and he was white, um, to be like, let's all get along and let's move past that. And he was like, and, and I acknowledge that you want to move past that, but you can't move past that without acknowledging first. And where mm-hmm. we go wrong is, right? And he, you know, kind of explained where he felt they went wrong in skipping over the acknowledgement. And I think that part is so important. And that's not here to say that like progress hasn't been made and things are not being done. Right. Like I'm not here to say that the state of Jim Crow is still here today. Like, that's not my point. My point is like, there's a missed acknowledgement there uh, that has not been addressed, but she also 
touched um and perhaps i'm probably skipping ahead but she also touched in later in the book about the impacts of all of these events having on the opposite side and she was like that could be a whole nother book and i hope it is a whole nother book <laughs> i hope it is a whole nother book right because it it impacted more than just black people mm-hmm. um and so to understand I hope I would love she may have I don't know because I'm just reading this book so don't come for me if she has already um if she has done a similar layout where she you know gets the information and perhaps there's a syndrome or some sort of something theory that she's suggesting um on the other side of that as well I think that would be interesting for me yeah um yeah, I think I've said this on prior episodes. I don't remember when. I think it was actually our season one. Um, I can't remember if it was provoked the woke or what, but uh, we had a discussion towards the end of that episode about education. And I think I talked about how during those lynchings, when you see those photos of those black bodies, there's a crowd in we know now that, you know, the bodies were chopped and they were taking souvenirs from the event. It was a gathering. It was, it was an opportunity to come and share and, you know, take pictures. And this is something they did. You know, it's like catching a fish, if you will. Um, and there's children in those photos. Those are somebody's uncle, somebody's grandpa, somebody's dad. You know what I mean? That's Um, arguably still walking the earth today. Exactly. So, Mm -hmm. you know, my point is you can't tell me that seeing bodies being brutalized like that doesn't do something to someone's psyche. Right. I agree. You can't tell me that. Whether in the moment you perceive it to be a good thing or not, this that is a traumatic experience. You're right. watching another human be brutalized, burned alive, mutilated, and whatever else of these, some of these examples are provided in this book or that we know about. So there's children present. Hell, animals were used to tear these people apart. To the, I still remember in 98 or 96, when those men beat that black man and tied him to the back of his truck yes, and I drove around until he was pulled apart. I remember that being in the headlines as a kid. Yeah. Because I remember around the same time, it was when I lived in Arizona, I saw my first representation of a Klansman and it was a two bit pickup trucks. They were huge. And the back um, windshield of the trucks had a big sticker of a Klansman holding a noose And I was so scared, like, oh my gosh. And it was in my neighborhood and there were two big trucks and they were just driving around and my neighborhood was predominantly black and Latin. So I was just like, oh my goodness, like they live here. And, you know, I was think probably like eight or nine years old at that time. Like I was so freaked out by that. Just the idea. I wasn't there. I wasn't present for the for this murder, I, I, nothing, but it was in the headlines at that time. And then I saw a Klansman. Mind you, it wasn't, uh, they never said that the men were wearing sheets when they did it. But for me, because of what I knew about history at that time, I knew that this was a racist act. And that's usually white supremacists, Klansmen, so on and so forth. That I made the connection myself. But in terms of being actual present, watching your parents smile, laugh while somebody's being terrorized and then taking parts of them home with you as a souvenir. You cannot tell me something isn't done or maybe even shut off in mm. terms of empathy, yeah, yeah. desensitized for this group of people. I, I'm, I feel like there's definitely an opportunity to explore the psyche of individuals who lived during that time for sure. Yeah, I agree with that 150%. And this is kind of going to segue us into our next um, episode. But since we have time, I want to touch on it because I think it connects really well. The, The trauma defined in the book is an injury caused by um, an outside, usually violent force event or experience. We can experience this injury physically, emotionally, psychologically, or spiritually. Um, mm. I think it's an important to define that. And I'll probably redefine it in our next episode to connect to that subject matter. But I think 
here that's really important for us to think about, right? Because you're right, it's it's definitely on, on it's not just on one side, right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. to know that they're still here today, many mm-hmm. of them are still here today. And I, you're right, I so remember that. I could have sworn that that was on Oprah. Somebody was on Oprah speaking about probably. Mm-hmm. This, it was I, everywhere. I re- recall it was it everywhere. Being on Oprah. But mm-hmm. anyway, she also talks about in the book how she used 9-11 as an example of this. Mm-hmm. But she was speaking about individuals who lived in New York were traumatized, but also Americans who watched it happen on TV could have been traumatized. You mm-hmm. could have not watched it on TV, TV, but knew someone who lost a loved one and been traumatized. Like So she talks about kind of like the triple effect of trauma and that one Proximity. does not have to... Yeah, one does not have to be there, see it, or personally experience it to be traumatized by something. But trauma impacts people differently. And she was like, someone could have seen it and not been traumatized, right? Perhaps someone watching in a different country or maybe who didn't have the same connection to 9-11 that maybe we may have had, et cetera. And so Mm -hmm. that's also something to think about when you think about the term post-traumatic slave syndrome, because- the cons the the argument that people make that you you were not enslaved is not really a valid one because it, it doesn't matter if I was enslaved it doesn't matter if there mm-hmm. there could be individuals who were just two three or four years old when nine eleven happened that could have still been impacted by that right mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. so don't make it seem like i'm not impacted because i wasn't physically there right you know yeah no you so. know um I, the proximity piece i think is very very huge and profound when it comes to this conversation proximity to trauma um and, and even right now covid Okay, for those who have not caught it, are they not impacted? No, our way of life has changed, right? And so you can't say that, you know, what's one way or another. And today, which I don't know if that was the case during the time of this book being wrote, we now have science that proves that trauma is inherited as well. You can inherit trauma from your parents, or yeah. from your culture or what have you. That is a real thing. Imagine generations of it. Yeah. Well, not only can it be passed down literally genetically, like from mother to child, but then if you also take into account so many things that I consider to be our culture, but what she is saying is actually symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that you grow up in mindset wise, you know, individuals mm-hmm. who raised you, right? So like, these individuals who lived through Jim Crow had children and those children right. had children. That is me. Right. 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 She speaks in the book, um, which we'll get to probably in our next one that we are slavery's children. Right. Mm-hmm. And how that's important mm-hmm. for us to understand. So whew, lots to unpack. <sighs> that title shook my th- core when I saw that. So, oh shit, let me take a nap. I'm not ready. I'm not ready to take a nap. (laughs) Yeah, a lot to unpack. Um, You know, it's a really good book. Um, I'm glad I had an opportunity to read it. I've seen her lectures, but to be honest, the book, the book really brought it home for me. So if you're someone who you've watched her lectures and I encourage you to watch her lectures and to continue to watch them, but that I wouldn't say that that is a replacement for the book for me personally. Um, So if you have an opportunity, please do check it out. Um, You know, as always, we'll leave, I'll leave the spelling and everything of the book in the description. So you guys can, you know, check it out if that's what you want to do. And we'll Mm -hmm. also put the article that Patrice referenced. So we'll put that there. Um, as always, make sure you like, share, subscribe, pass on this episode or this series of episodes uh, to someone who you think might enjoy the conversation. It's an educational piece. We're starting out strong for mm-hmm. season three. If you haven't already checked out our welcome episode, welcome back episode, make sure you do because there's so many announcements and things changing and I don't want you to be caught off guard. Like, well, why they do that? I didn't know. Mm-hmm, yes, we told mm-hmm. you. We told you in the first episode <laughs> and you ain't go back and listen to it. Um, Mm -hmm. please do check out our survey. 
Um, if you follow us on IG, which you should be at Melanated Intellects, it'll be in the link in the bio. We'll also be adding it uh, in the descriptions of our episodes. Really short, really short, really quick. Only take you a couple minutes. We're just looking for feedback and a way to connect with our audience. Um, so much of our audience is actually not here in the US. And we just want to make sure that we have both our international and um, international and non-international audience be mm-hmm. able to give us some feedback. Um, so Patrice, anything you want to add before we head out? Um, another profound conversation. Um, and thank you all for listening and listening to us unpack this. I hope that, you know, although it's not easy to talk about this because we're revisiting black trauma again, I hope that going into the psyche behind it is another layer. You know what I mean? Um, that creates some type of understanding i feel like when we can acknowledge the root we can address it and heal from it and move forward from it so um all this is done with love and education in mind take care of yourselves love on your loved ones love on yourself and we will see y'all next week or y'all will hear us next week i don't know why i keep saying see y'all will hear us next week (laughs) all right bye